Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, and we will pick up in verse 18. 18 this afternoon, so let's read 18 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll have our Bible study. Proverbs 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who gives attention to the word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of the righteous. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing to be upon us, and Lord, we ask for you to instruct us, Lord, in the way of wisdom. Lord, that we would see and understand, Lord, that to have the wisdom, Lord, found in your word, is more precious and more valuable, Lord, than, than silver or than gold. So, Lord, teach us today and give us this desire, Lord, to understand and to know your will that has been revealed to us in your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Here, we begin in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Right? When a person is proud, we know that God opposes the proud, that God hates pride, that pride is an abomination to the Lord. So when a man is proud and proud towards God, this pride is going to precede his destruction. His haughty spirit will come before his stumbling. If he does not repent of these things and he passes into eternity with a heart of pride and a haughty spirit, he will be destroyed. But also this is many times true even in this present life, that those who are proud will have a sudden fall, right? Because of their arrogance, because of the pride of their heart, they don't consider the dangers, they don't consider the things that can cause them to trip and stumble. And so many times their own pride deceives them and ultimately leads to their fall and to their ruin. And a good example of this is Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, the fall of Nebuchadnezzar was preceded by his proud and haughty spirit. Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 to 33. says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, 
Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for my glory and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So there, his proud and haughty spirit rejoicing in the works of his own hands and not giving the glory to God for what God had given to him, as if he rose to this position of prominence and he established this great kingdom by his own power and his own strength and his own might. This was his pride, and then this pride went before his fall. God judged him and God taught him humility through this stumbling and this fall that he fell into. Verse 19. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the, with the proud. Here, not only does pride go before destruction, but now we have this contrast, right? Better to be humble in spirit with the lowly. It is better to have a humble, gentle, quiet spirit, a lowly spirit, and be associated with those kinds of people, humble, lowly, quiet people, than to be proud and haughty and associate with these kinds of haughty, proud people, even if in their pride they're dividing the spoil. Many times it is the proud, the arrogant, those who are very aggressive, those who are seeking to exalt themselves, who actually arrive and attain these exalted positions in the world, which gives them access to fortunes, right, to many possessions, right, to spoil these types of things, and then they divide it amongst themselves. They're not dividing it with the lowly and humble. They're dividing it with those who are proud just like them. Well, it's better to be lowly, it's better to be humble and associate with those kinds of humble, lowly people than to have money and riches that is obtained through dividing it with proud people, right? Better to associate with a bunch of no-names, a bunch of insignificant people than to be hobnobbing with the rich and famous who are filled with pride and who are headed for a sure and certain destruction. Right? Doesn't it teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that not many of you were wise, not many of you were of noble birth? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. This is what is true of believers. And even those who are of noble birth, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God with their pride. They have to come in a humble, lowly way as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. Not many, he says, of them were wise, not many of them were mighty, not many of them were noble. But God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame those who are strong. The debased things, right? Those things that are despised in the world, God chooses these things and they're pleasing in his sight. And wasn't our Lord Jesus Christ lowly and humble in spirit, meek and mild, our Lord Jesus Christ? And who did he associate with? Well, he would associate with those who are rich or wealthy, with those who are noble, if they were truly repentant, if they were true believers, and if they were humble. But the majority of those who associated with Christ, and certainly many of his disciples, were those who were lowly and humble. So if Christ was lowly and humble, and if he associated with lowly, humble people, then shouldn't we as well? And isn't the body of Christ to be made up of lowly, humble people? At least spiritually we are, even if one attains to some standing in this world, in the body of Christ, we are to be lowly and humble in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we also relate to God. Verse 20, he who gives attention to the word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Right, giving attention to the word, and the word here being the word of God. If we give attention to the word of God, if we are concerned about knowing the word of God and what the word of God says about all the various matters of life, then we will find good because the word of God gives to us good instruction, good teaching. This is why it calls us to go to the teaching and to the testimony. We need to go to the Word of God because that is where we will find good for our souls, benefit for our souls. We'll be made wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And the one who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in the wisdom of God found in the Word of God, this is the man who will be blessed. Right? The blessing is found in trusting the Word of God, trusting God through His Word. As we remember in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. This is where our focus should be, knowing and believing the word of God. And if we do that, we will find good and we will be blessed of the Lord. If this is our desire in life. Jeremiah chapter 17, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8 makes this contrast between those who trust in men and those who trust in the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and he will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Verse 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Here, the wise in heart will be called understanding. Those that are wise in their heart. They have wisdom in their heart, 
And as a result of the wisdom in their heart, they have wisdom in their words, they have wisdom in their actions, their life portrays this wisdom that is there found in their heart, and as a result, people see and know that they have understanding. This is a wise and an understanding man who understands how to live before God. And then people will go and know that they can consult them, that they can receive wise counsel from these kinds of people. They will have a reputation of being a wise and understanding man. And then when there is sweetness of speech, it increases persuasiveness. When our speech is sweet, all right, when it is filled with grace, with mercy, with kindness, right, with tenderness, does that not increase persuasiveness? Right? If we're constantly harping, criticizing, screaming, ranting, and raving at people, right, even if what we're telling them is good and right, it's going to turn them off. Right? They're not going to want to listen to that kind of negative, sour attitude. Right? If we have a, a sour disposition, but when there is sweetness of speech, it increases the persuasiveness. We don't want, through our speech, to put stumbling blocks to the truth. But rather, we want to, through our speech, bring incentives to the truth so that it is more appealing to people in the way that we speak it. Speaking the truth in love, right? This is the way that we ought to communicate with one another. Speak the truth in love. James chapter 3. James 3.13 James 3.13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Right? If we are wise and understanding, that's what our verse is talking about, in the heart. Wisdom in the heart results in understanding, being a person who is known as a wise and understanding man. Well, where does that wisdom in the heart manifest itself outwardly to the body of Christ? It is in the good behavior, in his deeds of gentleness and wisdom. This is the way it manifests and becomes open and plain for everyone to see. Verse 22, understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. Understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it. Not everyone has understanding because only the Spirit can teach us and give to us this wisdom and this understanding. Many people have access to the wisdom of God. There are many people, even many in America, who have Bibles, but their Bibles sit there on their shelf. They never read them. They never open them. And then even if they do, they don't understand the things that they are reading. But when a person has understanding, the understanding that is given by the Spirit of God, this understanding and this wisdom is a fountain of life. It results, it bubbles up into eternal life with God. Because, again, this is what the Bible is teaching us. How it is that we can have eternal life with God. And when we obtain this wisdom, this understanding, it results in eternal life with God. It is a fountain of life to the one who possesses it. All throughout his life, it continues to give to him more and more life, vitality, vigor in his spiritual being. However, the contrast is that the discipline of fools is folly. The discipline of fools is the wisdom of fools, the instruction of fools, the way that they are 
communicating and telling us how to live. Even what they say that is good and right, it is folly because they themselves are fools. It's proceeding from a heart of foolishness, from a wisdom that is not wisdom at all, but rather is utter foolishness before God. And then this is the basis for their instruction, for their discipline. So whatever they say and however they instruct us, it's going to be filled with folly. And we know that when a man is not depending on the word of God, but trusting in his own opinions, his own wisdom, his own insights, his own intellect, right? When he's depending on the latest and greatest works of philosophy, of literature, whatever it is that he is going to as his source of wisdom. If that wisdom is not founded upon the word of God, then whatever he says by way of instruction, teaching, by way of discipline, it is going to be filled with foolishness. And it's not going to be useful for us spiritually. 23. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Here, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Whatever is in his heart, and here we know that what is in his heart is wisdom, right? That's what it said in verse 21. The wise in heart. He has wisdom in his heart, and this wisdom that is in his heart instructs his mouth. So that his mouth is a fountain of life. So that what comes out of his mouth is consistent with the wisdom that is in his heart. The word of God is inscribed on his heart. So now the word of God comes out of his mouth in this way. There's this connection between the heart and the mouth. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. If wisdom is in the heart, wisdom will be there on the lips and it will come out of his mouth. The good man... The good man has a good treasure in his heart. And this good treasure in the heart, which is the Holy Spirit of God, teaches his mouth what to say. And then it says, it gives him persuasiveness, right? Persuasiveness in his words. Meaning his words, to those who are wise, they see the sound judgment. That this is good counsel, that you speak rightly. What you are saying to me is good, consistent, and it is right in the sight of God. And I should listen to what you say. There is a persuasiveness that accompanies this wisdom that is flowing out of his heart through his lips. Matthew 12, Matthew 12, verse 34. Matthew 12, 34. Actually, 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the, that day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Here, this focus of our verse in verse 23 is, by your word you will be justified. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. His good words justify him, not that they are the basis for his salvation, but they are the proof of his salvation. They show that his heart is regenerate, that his heart is filled with the Spirit of God, that the law of God, the word of God is written on his heart, and therefore it is coming forth in his lips and in his mouth, and in his instruction that he gives to others. Verse 24. 
Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Here, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, dripping with honey, with sweetness, with that which is good and pleasing and delightful to both the soul and the body. Now, these pleasant words are not just niceties that we might say to one another. Oh, you're a very wonderful person. I like the way your hair looks today. Did you get a new, uh, I don't know, car, whatever it is that people, new outfit, something like that. Okay, yeah, that's good and fine to give those compliments. But here, these pleasant words, these are the words of Scripture. These are the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, who he is, the Son of God and Son of Man, what he has done. He's come and he's lived a perfect life. He's died on the cross, right, for our sins, about justification and how we can have our sins forgiven in him, about future glorification, right? These are pleasant words, right? These are the things that are a delight to the souls of men, the truths of the gospel that are founded upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. These precious truths are dripping with spiritual honey that goes down deep into the souls of men, and it gives them life and vitality, just as it was with Jonathan. Remember Jonathan when they were all starving to death? They were hungry, and there was the honeycomb, and he dipped his staff there, and he ate some of that honey, and it gave him vitality, right? It brightened his eyes. It refreshed his body, This is what the gospel truths do to the souls of men. It refreshes our spirits and our souls, right? It renews us, it strengthens us, because it is like a sweet honeycomb that is dripping in this way, and it is healing both to the soul, sweet to the soul, and also healing to the bones. It brings life to both our spirit and to our bodies, to the entirety of our being. It is beneficial to us, in all of these ways. Verse 25. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is the way that seems right to a man, to a natural man, to a carnal man, to a worldly man, to a man dead in his trespasses and sins. Right? The people of the world, they do not know that they are fools. They believe that they are very wise, that they are very crafty. They claim to be wise, but in reality, they are fools. But in their so-called wisdom, there are many things that seem and appear good and right to them. And then they pronounce these things, right? They create policies to promote these things. They want everyone to praise and to follow and to do the very things that they do. It is right in their own eyes, according to worldly, demonic, natural carnal wisdom. This seems right to them, but ultimately all of these things will end in what? In death, right? They ultimately end in destruction because when a man is promoting his own wisdom, what seems right to him, but what is right to him is wrong in the sight of God in a very contradiction of the word of God, then ultimately that man is going to be found wanting And he is going to be judged on the day of judgment. And he will be destroyed for not submitting to the wisdom of God found in the person of Christ. We cannot trust our own opinions, our own insights, our own intellect. We cannot trust what the world says, what the media says, what the news anchor says, what the internet says. We can't trust any of these things. What is the only source that we have in this world of wisdom that we can trust? 
and it is the Word of God. Only the Word of God can teach us what we need for salvation. In anyone and anything that contradicts the Bible, we know that they are wise in their own eyes, they're shrewd in their own understanding, they're promoting that which seems right to themselves, but ultimately it will end in destruction. And if we follow them in their foolishness, not only will they be destroyed, but we will be destroyed as well. Right? If the blind man leads a blind man, they both fall into a pit. They're going to fall into a pit unless they repent of their foolishness. And if we follow them, we'll fall into that pit with them. And we don't want to fall into the pit, the pit of hell. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, 20 to 21 Isaiah 5, 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own insight. They're wise in their own eyes. They're clever in their own insight. But we don't want to be wise in our own eyes. We want to be wise in God's eyes. We want to be clever in his sight. And this we accomplish by believing his word. Believing his word and rejecting the lies of the world. Verse 26. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. These are the things that need to be taught, right? They need to be taught out in the world today in terms of uh, laziness, in terms of slothfulness, in terms of people not working, and leeching off of others? Well, the worker's appetite works for him. His appetite is useful to him because his appetite urges him to go to work because he knows if he doesn't work, he won't earn any money. And if he doesn't earn the money, he can't buy the food that's going to satisfy this urge, this desire to eat, right? So his appetite is an incentive, a motivating factor that causes him to labor and to work. And God has created us in this way. So that just as we have daily need of bread, so what do we need to do every day? Except for the Lord's day. We need to work. Six days you should labor. Six days you should labor. You should work. And why do we need to work? So that we can provide food for ourselves and for our families and those things that are needful for this present life. And those needs are there to urge us on to our labor so that we will work and not be lazy and neglect the work that is necessary for us in this life. Now, this is beneficial not only physically, but also it's beneficial spiritually. Spiritual hunger is a strong incentive to go to the Word of God. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, where are we going to go to have that hunger and that thirst satisfied? We're going to go to the Word of God. So we need that hunger. In this case, it's good. Typically, physical hunger is bad for us if we're starving to death. Spiritual hunger is good because it drives us to the word of God so that we will be satisfied there with his word. Spiritual hunger is a strong incentive to spiritual disciplines, right? To do those things that are necessary to satisfy this desire. 27, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like a scorching fire. Here, this worthless man digs up evil. He searches for it, right? He searches for it either, meaning that he is digging it up 
so that he himself can practice evil and mischief, or he's an evil man who likes to dig up dirt on other people, right? He likes to dig up evil on others so that he can then pronounce them and publish them so that his tongue can become like a scorching fire. He wants to know the secret sins of people. He wants to dig it up, and he'll even create sins in people so that he can then announce and pronounce them far and wide in order to destroy their reputation, in order to slander and to gossip and to bring to ruin the good reputation of his neighbor. He searches for it like a buried treasure. He does it for the sake of satisfying his own lust, but also in order to destroy his own neighbor. And then his tongue is described as a fire, like a scorching fire that destroys, right? This is what the scorching fire does. Wherever it comes, whatever pathway, it destroys all those things that are in its path. And so is this evil person, a worthless man with this destructive tongue He destroys wherever he goes. This is the same as James chapter 3. James 3, 16 teaches us that the tongue, though a very small member of the body, is there and it is set on fire by hell. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The tongue is set on fire by hell. If the tongue is unchecked, if we're not exercising self-control and wisdom over the use of our tongue, making sure that our instrument is not used for unrighteousness, but rather that we're using it for righteousness' sake. That's what we talked about earlier. The persuasive speech, the sweet words that are in the mouth of the righteous. But the wicked, worthless man doesn't have those sweet words. Instead, he has words of destruction. And he uses his tongue as a fire to destroy other people through slander and gossip. 28. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Here, the worthless man who digs up evil, the worthless man whose words are like a scorching fire, the result of his uncovering of evil, the result of his spreading these things far and uh, broad, is the spreading of strife and separating of close friends. When he goes around as a whisperer, right, saying these things, whispering into the ears of other people, it causes these people that hear him to now begin to have doubts, reservations. They begin to look at people who before they had a very favorable, charitable view of them. Now they have a very suspicious view of them. They begin to look at them in a different light, right? And it causes strife and friction between them. And it ultimately will bring separation even between close friends, men who are at peace with one another, men who were in camaraderie, who had friendship, who were very cordial and friendly toward one another, now that relationship is completely lost, completely gone, because of this man who is a slanderer and has separated close friends. And this happens, right? It, 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 it truly does happen. People who have been very close friends for many, many, many years, very close personal friends, 
And yet now we'll have no contact with each other, no relationship anymore because of a slanderer who separated these close friends. We shouldn't do that. It's not good and right. We're supposed to be peacemakers, right? Aren't we supposed to have a ministry of reconciliation? Right now, not false reconciliation and not false peace, but we should not be sinfully separating people, but rather trying to build up the body of Christ and bring each other into fellowship with one another instead of causing problems and bringing division where there should not be any division. This uh, example is in 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, this was happening with Saul and David. David had done nothing to deserve Saul's hatred and for Saul to be seeking to kill him. And one of the reasons that Saul turned on David was because of worthless men who were putting things in the mind of Saul against David that were not true. 1 Samuel 24, verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Right? David never sought to harm Saul, but rather everything David did was beneficial to Saul. He was a help and a support to him. And there was a time where they were close, intimate friends, where Saul viewed David almost as one of his own sons, and he was his son-in-law. But then he began to see him as an enemy. Now, certainly, God is at work in all of this, but one of the means used, of the evil people used to bring this about, were these men who were saying and whispering to Saul that David is trying to harm you. David, he's pretending to be your friend, but actually, he's trying to overthrow your kingdom. He wants your kingship, and he's going to undermine you at every turn. And they poisoned his mind against David. Well, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't be whispering, publishing sin. These are lies, these blatant lies. We shouldn't be repeating these kinds of blatant lies in order to turn people one against the other. It's a very evil and wicked thing to do, and we should not have any part in it. Verse 29. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Right? A man of violence is not only violent himself, but he wants others to join him in his bloodshed, right, in his kind of violence. So he entices his neighbor, he stokes the fire in his neighbor, he works him up so that his neighbor becomes thirsty for blood, just like this violent man, and then leads him in a way that is not good. His neighbor was good and fine. He's minding his own business. But then this violent man comes, Through his persuasiveness, he uses manipulation. He gets him all worked up into a frenzy so that he entices him to come and join him in doing things that are not good, in the way that is not good. Isn't this what the chief priests and the scribes did with the people against Christ? They went into the crowd and they stirred up the people against Christ so that then the very people were demanding the crucifixion of Christ. The violence was coming. The instigators were the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees, but they went and enticed their neighbors to join them in this violence, and then they led them in a way that was not good so that they were, took, took part in crucifying Jesus Christ, the King of glory. And then they had that sin on top of all of their other sins. 
So it's not good to do that. Verse 30. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Here, the winking of the eye, the compressing of the lips. These are ways that wicked men signal and sign so that they might perform their acts of wickedness and deception upon other people. They wink with the eye, they compress with their lips, right, in order to bring their evil to pass. They have these kinds of subtle, secretive ways of mocking, of ridiculing, of doing these types of things so that evil comes to pass. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 13. Actually, verse 12 says, A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. They're winking with the eyes, signaling with the feet, pointing with the finger in order to bring about these Devices of evil that are in his heart. This is what the worthless, wicked man does. Verse 31. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Typically, men and women complain. They get depressed. They get sad. Whenever their hair begins to turn gray. Or whenever it begins to fall out. Right? Because... Part of our youthfulness, part of the natural beauty that God gives to us in our youthfulness, right, is a full head of hair, right? It's got its color, it's very beautiful, and they take great pride in these things. And certainly there is a proper place for that beauty to be displayed in the proper time of life. So typically, when that begins to pass and fade, and we lose that beauty and the vigor associated with our youthfulness when we're in the prime of our life in terms of our physical being, and there are signs that we are passing from that into the next stages of our life, right? And we're going over the hill, right? The plateau is in the background, and we're, we're about to, to fall off of it, right? That's exactly what begins to happen. Well, here, God in His graciousness and in His kindness... He grants a new, a new kind of beauty to those who are of old age, right? When the natural physical beauty is fading away, there is another beauty that accompanies them in their later years that is even more wonderful, even more beautiful in the sight of God than that physical beauty that they possessed when they were in their youthfulness. There is a replacement of beauty, the one being the physical beauty with the beauty of wisdom, with wisdom and the honor and respect and reverence that should accompany those who are of, uh, of uh, old age there in the body of Christ. Now, this isn't for all people. Notice he says, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness, right? This is for the church, for those who walk in the pathway of righteousness. The gray head of a righteous man or a righteous woman who has lived their lives faithfully to the Lord, who has proven themselves to be godly, righteous men and women, true believers through a life of faithfulness to the Lord. Their gray head is a testimony 
of the goodness of God and a testimony of their endurance and of their wisdom. And they deserve respect, honor, reverence. They deserve a high position and a high standing in the household of faith because of the beauty accompanying a life of godliness, a life of endurance and faithfulness, right? Because those who are at the end of their life, but who have endured for all of these years, they have proven that they have persevered, right? They have come to the end and they have not denied the Lord. And they are an example, right? They are a a pillar among us of the goodness and kindness of God and of their own faithfulness and the righteousness that God has produced within them. So there is a new honor attached to them in a good and godly life. Now, it's not going to be recognized in the world, but it should be recognized amongst the household of faith. Now, for those in the world who have a gray head, then it is a testimony of their folly, their foolishness. Because the gray head is a sign that they're about to pass out of this life into the life to come, and yet they're still living in sin. They're not prepared to stand before their maker. So this is only true of those in the household of faith. And we ought to give to them the honor that is due to them. Verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Self-control. Self-control over your own passions that wage war within you over the anger that wells up within the heart. A man who has control over his anger, who is able to moderate it, who is slow to anger. Not that there's never a place for there to be proper anger. We know that Jesus himself even had proper righteous anger, but he was not quick and hasty to anger. He was slow to anger. It was justified always. Well, this is how we should be very slow to anger, and have a rulership over our spirit so that our temper doesn't get the best of us. Typically, when people get angry and they're quick to anger, then they say many things that they should not say. They just spout out in the heat of the moment, and they give free reign to their lips, and many horrible things will come out. Or they'll do things, right? They might punch someone or slug them right, or attack them, right, in this way, in their anger, because they have no control over their passions and over the anger that is within them. Well, if you have control over these things, this is greater, a greater conquest than a king that goes and takes a mighty city, right? All of the resources and all the planning and strategy that are necessary for a king to conquer a mighty city, that is not as great a conquest as someone who conquers his own spirit, who conquers his anger, who has self-control over his desires and is able to moderate those things according to the will of God. And who is the only one that can do this? Only the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God within us can teach us how to control our passions. And is this not one of the fruits of the Spirit? The fruits of the Spirit, the last one being self-control. So this is also very beautiful in the sight of God. Though, again, unseen in the sight of men. Unrecognized many times in the sight of men. But God sees it for what it truly is. And it is more pleasing in his sight than the one that captures a mighty city. Then verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Those things that seem and appear random 
that seemed like chance, that seemed like happenstance, right? Like the casting of the lot into the lap. We don't know which way it's going to fall, but its decision ultimately comes from the Lord. Everything is under the will and control of God so that the way it falls in the decision it renders, ultimately it comes from the Lord. An example of this would be Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So there, when these sailors cast lots to determine on whose account this calamity had overcome them. Now they're doing this in their superstition at this point. But ultimately, who controls that? The Lord did, so that it fell on Jonah. Now, it's not justifying doing superstitious things, right? We shouldn't do that, and we shouldn't make foolish decisions based upon chance. But there was a place right, in the law for them to cast lots in this way in order to determine the will of God. And here again, the point being that no matter what happens in this life, even those things that are chance or random to us are not random to the Lord, but everything is coming about after the counsel of his own will. If the lot is controlled by the Lord, then what about our lives? What about the lives of his children, of his people? Is he not watching over us? Is he not caring for us? Is not everything that happens in our life coming about according to the counsel of his own will for our good and for his glory? So we can take great comfort in knowing that all of this is under the control of God and that not a hair will fall, on our, fall from our head apart from our Father who is in heaven. And that is a great hope and comfort for the people of God. Okay, well, we'll stop there for the week. And we'll pick up uh, in chapter 17 next week.